You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 18. Visiting with us for the first time, we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew on these Lord's days, and we have come in our study of Matthew this morning to the 15th verse of the 18th chapter. Both this morning and this evening, we are going to spend our time in verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, and we read beginning with verse 15. Our Lord says this, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's go to our Father together and ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, you've made us your children in your Son. By virtue of the saving work of Christ Jesus, we are now members of your family. We are yours by virtue of adoption, and we are yours because you have given to us a new nature and made us new creations. In this we rejoice, and for this we are grateful today and for forever. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word in this next hour, would you shine your light into our darkness? Would you enlighten our eyes to see who you are and what you call for us to be as a result of our relationship with you? May you strengthen us to receive the things you've revealed, and may you change our lives as a result. Lord, that's what we pray for, changed hearts, changed lives, good fruit that remains in this life and throughout eternity. We are mindful, as has already been prayed, of those who hear me today who don't know your Son, and we ask for salvation. We'll be very careful to give you the praise and the glory that is true and truly yours. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we come to today cannot be overemphasized in terms of its importance. What a church does with these verses says a lot about a church. What an individual does with these verses says a lot about that individual. Is there spiritual health? Are we healthy? What we do with these verses says something about that. Do we have a high view of God? A high view of our relationships with each other in the family of God? Do we truly love the Lord? 
Do we truly love each other? Do we have reverence for the Word of God? We read in Scripture of a people who tremble at God's Word. Is that us? Do we understand the authority of Scripture? I mean, the absolute truthfulness of Scripture, which should inform us right away. But in addition to that, the authority of it, that when Scripture speaks, God has spoken. Is that how we see it? Are we striving for holiness? We are told by our God that we're to be holy because He is holy. And we understand that He has made us a holy people by virtue of justification, but He is making us a holy people by virtue of progressive sanctification. Are we striving for holiness? Are we a humble people? Humble enough to be corrected. Humble enough to make sure we don't neglect correcting someone whom we love and who's in need of correction. Do we see people in terms of the soul? I mean, do we see lives in terms of eternity? Do we understand how deadly sin is? That's just a sampling of what is manifested in the verses that we come to today. The importance of this passage is manifested in more than one way. It requires that we think about something positive and negative. Positively, we cannot ignore these verses. I mean, they must be practiced in the life of the church. Negatively, we must be careful that we don't mispractice these verses, wrongly practice these verses. Because the church will suffer, individuals will suffer if we go astray on either front. If we refuse to love each other in the ways these verses call for so we don't practice these verses, the results will be disastrous. But if we attempt to practice these verses in a way that's proud and superficial, and we're mechanically embracing the process, we're taking the steps these verses speak of, but without the heart that is on display in these verses, it will be equally disastrous. On the one hand, we must refuse the pride that would refuse to obey these verses. On the other hand, we must refuse the pride that would result in a fleshly application of these verses. This is a tremendously important section. So today and tonight and next week in all likelihood, we're going to be thinking about the correction of God's children the correction of God's children. This morning what I want to do, as we often do when we come to a section like this, this morning and tonight I want to take a, a high-level view of these verses. I want to look at them in sort of a, a, an overview, summary fashion. Then next week we'll come back and just walk through the land verse by verse and take note of the details. But today I just want us to grasp it in its totality, to hear it as a whole. And so this morning I want to begin with the context for this instruction. The context for this instruction, I'm going to share nine elements or nine principles for the correction of God's children. We'll look at four this morning, we'll see five tonight. Nine principles for the correction of God's children. And so as we walk through those nine points, what I'm about to talk about will be emphasized in almost every one of them. But to begin, I at least want to put this in our minds that the context for all of this is how do we live as God's children? That's what this entire chapter is dealing with. 
How do we live our lives on this side of eternity as the children of God? In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18, we saw that the kingdom belongs to God's children. We must become his little children to enter the kingdom. And this is, this is how Christ is referring to his disciples. He takes a child, puts the child in their midst. The child is just an illustration of what we all have become by the grace of God. We were humbled when the Lord saved us. We became as little children when the Lord saved us. So the kingdom belongs to God's children. And we saw in verses 5 through 9 that our king identifies with these children. To treat his children well is to treat him well. To treat these children poorly is to treat him poorly. So in this way, the father has identified his children with his son, and the son has identified God's children with himself. So the kingdom belongs to God's children. The king identifies with God's children. That means, verses 10 through 14, the children of God are to be cared for. The way we regard each other and treat each other and care for each other should reflect our understanding of the family of God. Now, verses 15 through 20, we're going to see the children of God are to be corrected. You see, this is a part of being a, being a member of the family of God. You and I are loved in a way that involves training, correction. And then we're going to see when we get to verse 21, verses 21 through 35, the children of God are to be forgiven, which follows beautifully the, the instruction given about correction. What is on the other side of correction and repentance? On the other side of correction and repentance is forgiveness. So the entire chapter is about living life as one of God's children. And the particular section we come to has to do with the correction of God's children. When Jesus talks about the church in verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, he's using the term ecclesia in its informal sense. He's just talking about the community of God's people. The, the church as we know it now, the church that Christ promised, that, that he said he would build his own assembly, the church indwelt by the Spirit of God, which began at Pentecost. The church with the formal elements that make up the New Testament congregation, elders, deacons, the ordinances. All of this follows the ascension of Christ. So as Jesus is speaking, still on the earth, has not yet gone to the cross, has not yet been raised from the dead, has not yet ascended into heaven. That church, as we know it right now, was not yet in existence. So when he, when he says, tell it to the church, the assembly of God's people, he's just talking about the community of God's people in general terms. However, we do note he is speaking these things in anticipation of what would come, where we live right now, so that these things are to be applied in the church as we know it right now. In fact, from Matthew chapter 13 onward, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will leave them in this world, give them the Holy Spirit, and build his church through the proclamation of the word of the kingdom. So this is anticipatory, and we are to apply these things to the local church, to the local congregations, to the local assemblies of God's people in our day. 
wherever the children of God exist together, these verses apply. So what do they tell us? The elements of the instruction. The context for the instruction were the family of God. The elements of the instruction. We're going to see nine principles. Each one I'm going to describe using the words, the discipline of sin, because that's what our Lord is focused on here. When a child of God has sinned and needs correction, how is that to happen in the family of God, in the community of God's people? How do we deal with each other's sins? That's what he's talking about. As I said, four of these we'll look at this morning. Here's the first one. I want you to note with me that the discipline of sin is a family matter. It is a family matter. Twice in verse 15, our Lord envisions a situation where a brother has sinned, right? Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We're talking about brothers, professed brothers. This is how believers live together, serve together, function together, help each other. In fact, our Lord makes clear that, that the correction that's taking place is in the community of a people who are His people, who function in His name. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. If any of you, my disciples, the children of God, who gather in my name, walk in the truths that are taught here, you can know that I'm right there with you. It's what our Lord is saying. In fact, if someone refuses to be corrected, if they refuse this process all the way through, what is the result? They are put out of the church, and now they are regarded as an evangelism project. Now they're regarded as someone who doesn't know the Lord. Verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile. And the tax collector, the people who are regarded as sinners, the people who are outside, regarded as outside the fellowship of the living God. And then when our Lord gets to the matter of forgiveness in verse 21, again, the context is sins committed by one brother against another. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? up to seven times. So the discipline of sin in the congregation of God's people is a family matter. We don't use the terms brother and sister without meaning. It's reality we're describing. If you know the living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit, you and I are truly brethren. This is why church membership matters. It is not our task to shepherd goats. We shepherd sheep. 
And you can know this about sheep, they take their place with other sheep. Someone who says, I know Jesus Christ, but they don't want to be connected to the local church is someone who is denying their profession by their practice. God's people find their place with God's people. We have worshipped this week individually, but we come together to worship corporately. This is what saved people do. So these verses are teaching us, we don't treat unbelievers like brothers, but we don't treat brothers like unbelievers. When we take our place in, in the Lord's church among God's people and we say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm your brother or I'm your sister. Well, now, we will be held to the standard that God gives for His family. 1 Corinthians 5.9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then he says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. If someone is resistant to the correction found in the family of God, then eventually they are purged from the corporate expression of the family of God. Not hated, but pursued now as someone who needs Jesus. Because their response to the confrontation of their sin gave clear evidence they don't know Jesus. God's people not only gather together, God's people are responsive to one another as we love each other in the way these verses describe. So this is the first observation I would offer. What he's describing is a matter of family love. This is what takes place where the family of God gathers. The discipline of sin is a family matter. Second, the discipline of sin is an orderly matter. Isn't it clear from our verses the Lord has set forth a process? And it is an ingenious process. Clearly, the revelation of divine wisdom. Because it's a process that is simple enough that it doesn't just allow for the individual application of God's Word in sin matters, needing wisdom and discretion, it doesn't just allow for that, it requires it. No two situations are exactly alike. And so the Lord, with the simplicity of the instruction, gives room and space for us to take the Word of God in hand and apply it in individual situations as best meets the need. How do we help this brother or sister out of the ditch of sin? We take the Word of God, and with the wisdom of God, we address sin issues. But this process is not so rigid that we don't have freedom and discretion to do that in the best way possible. 
That's divine wisdom on display. At the same time, this process is rigid enough that it protects against the abuse of sin being committed in the name of helping people in sin. See, if we misapply these verses, we can actually sin against people in the name of rescuing them from their sin. This process guards against that. It's a process that affirms the Old Testament standard. I mean, God's mind hasn't changed on this. It affirms the Old Testament standard requiring that a matter be confirmed by two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, And a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Which is why the process is what it is in these verses. What is the process? Well, as you see, I know you read it just like I did. First of all, it's a one-on-one matter. We go to a person whom we love. We recognize a sin issue that needs to be addressed. We go one-on-one. And then if they don't receive us, they don't receive the issue, if it's disputed, well, then you go with two or three. And then if the matter is not received, you tell it to the church. And then if the matter is not received, you put them out of the church. And this process is to always be respected. It is never to be disregarded. 1 Timothy 5.19 says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Elders are as subject to the discipline process as anybody else in the church. But the Holy Spirit of God through Paul makes clear you can't bypass the process. Elders are more public than every other member of the church. And so envision a situation where someone wants to just stand up and make an accusation in the public setting. No! Have you walked through the process? Because if you haven't gone one-on-one, if you haven't gone with two or three, we're not going to hear it. So simple enough to allow for wisdom, discretion, throughout the process, but rigid enough that we protect against abuses in the name of curing sin. Think about the kinds of sins that we are protected against by this process. Destruction by slander. How often do we want to to talk about someone's sin instead of talking to them about their sin? Destruction by mob think. Right? We're not going to all consider it together at the beginning stages. You don't just tell it to the church. You've got to go one-on-one. And then it's got to be established by two or more witnesses if they won't receive the individual testimony regarding their need for help. It's not going to be ruled by mob think. This protects against destruction by innuendo or speculation, imagination. By the way, dear ones, we have, to, we have to apply this in our own hearts, our own minds, our own individual interactions with people. How often do people make an accusation with a raised eyebrow, with nonverbal communication? Well, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. 
you do realize that's wrong. That's wrong. Gossip. And in some cases, what you have would be alienation or or various levels of withdrawn fellowship based upon something that has never been established. Beginning to pull away from people, distance ourselves from people. When this process has not been followed, this is an orderly matter. There's a process to be respected, and that process is protective as well as productive. So it's a family matter. It's an orderly matter. Third thing I want you to note, the discipline of sin is a wisdom matter. Now I want to go back to what I said a moment ago, the simplicity of it, which allows for freedom in the application of God's Word case by case. I don't mean freedom in the sense that that the Bible doesn't say what it says and sin isn't what the Bible describes. I don't mean that. Sin is sin. The Bible is true, always. What I mean is, now, how do we best help this person who is in this sin? Get out of this sin. That becomes a matter of wisdom. This is why the church is so important. Like everything else in the life of the church, formal correction is to be shepherded, guided by faithful elders. The elders teach the church so that you are saturated with knowledge of the Word of God so you can help each other individually. And then where where it reaches the level of two or three, or if it reaches the level where we tell it to the church, this is all being led by the God-given leaders of the church, the elders of the church, so that God is honored, Christ is pleased, and people are not mistreated. This is a matter for wisdom. I say this noting all of the things in in these verses that are left unspecified. You ever thought about this passage that way? Our Lord tells us what to do when there's a sin issue. But think about all the things He doesn't tell us. Such as, we are not told which sins. Which sins do I go to my brother about one-on-one? Which sins would require two or more witnesses? Which sins would we tell to the church? For which sins would we exclude someone from the membership of the church? He doesn't tell us. We're not told at what point of sinning those sins are to be addressed. Anybody here sin last week? (laughs) If you did, would you rate? No. (laughs) I know the answer to that. We all did at some point. We all did at some point. Attitude, thought, word, motive, action, behavior, response, sins of commission, sins of omission, things we should have done we didn't do. So at what point of sinning do we begin confronting each other? It would be an exasperating, exhausting thing if you and I tried to confront each other over every sin committed. So at what point does it become a matter for confrontation? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us how long each of the steps of the process should take. How long before you go one-on-one until you go with two or more? How long after you've gone with two or more before you tell it to the church? 
How long after you've called the church to love this person by pursuing them and praying for them and speaking to them, how long until you put them out of the church? You'll search the passage in vain for those answers. He doesn't tell us. We're not told about the nature of the witnesses. How do you find them? Where do you go to get them? What do you tell them when you ask them to help you? How do they specifically participate? Are these people who are able to say they've seen what you've seen? Or are these people meant to listen as you interact with this person and then they serve as witnesses in that way? He doesn't say. How do we know we've won our brother? Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. How do you know you've won your brother? Just because he says, okay? How do you gauge repentance? Our Lord doesn't tell us, and we could go on and on and on. Now, in all those questions I've just raised, the totality of God's Word gives us much guidance, much wisdom about how to judge those things. But my point is, it takes judgment, doesn't it? It takes wisdom. You can't live the the, the Christian life without the Holy Spirit, which is why the church is so important, which is why shepherds are so important, because this entire process is to be shepherded, both through teaching and then through modeling and then through leadership. The discipline of the church is a wisdom matter. It's a family matter. It's an orderly matter. It's a wisdom matter, the discipline of sin. Fourth point, fourth principle, the the discipline of sin is a redemptive matter. It's all about redemption. It's about rescue. The reason for mutual correction in the family of God is love. So right away, okay, you are mispracticing these verses if love is not your motivation. Before you ever consider confronting someone else's sin, ask yourself, is this because I love them? The goal of mutual correction in the family of God is rescue. Why am I doing this? Why am I raising this issue? To rescue them? To help them? The reason is love. The goal is rescue. The motive for mutual correction in the family of God is God's glory and their good. Is this what motivates me? The glory of God and the good of His people. If not, I'm not practicing the verses rightly. If I'm not loving you, I'm not practicing the verses rightly. If my goal is not to help you, I'm not practicing the verses rightly. If my motive is not the glory of God and, and the good of your soul, then I'm not practicing the verses rightly. The attitude for mutual correction in the family of God is humility and self-examination. I'm to approach another person in this kind of scenario with a heart that recognizes my own sinfulness. And in fact, before I speak to you about the issue you're dealing with, have I examined my own life for the very same issue? Am I willing to take the log out of my eye so that I can see clearly to remove the splinter out of yours? Humility. If my heart is 
proud. I'm in no place to practice this. If I'm not willing to examine myself, I'm in no place to practice this rightly. Why is there an escalating process set forth? Why do you begin one-on-one? Then two or three. Then the church. Why? Because the goal is to win them in the most private way possible, you see? This is why you begin one-on-one. If he hears you, you've won him. What does that mean? The matter's over. It's done. Can I tell you something? Listen. If you're seeking to win another person and you're at that one-on-one stage, but you're already disseminating to everybody else what the person has done wrong, you have done wrong. The goal is to win them, and loving them means in the most private way I can. Let me state it negatively. The goal is not to embarrass someone. The goal is not to get even. You are out of bounds if what's motivating you is retribution. You've hurt me, now I want to hurt you. You're out of bounds. The goal is redemption. Loving someone in a way that you want the very best for them and you recognize what sin is doing to them and what it's going to do to them if they stay on that path. That's what motivates you. So that, the truth, helps to save us from being a people who lack graciousness and who lack patience. When someone meets with you in the confrontation of their sin, are they meeting with a gracious person, a patient person? You might ask, and again, we're going to walk, as I said, we're going to walk through this carefully in two weeks, but you might ask this morning, what kinds of sins are to be confronted and what is the timing for the confrontation? Well, obviously, scandalous sin must be confronted. I mean, disqualifying sins, sins that in the estimation of any unbeliever would bring reproach on the name of Christ. Those things must be confronted. But may I say to you that I believe any sin that has become characteristic of a person, right? There's a pattern, an ongoing pattern of sin in this person's life, and it is proving to be destructive to them, to their family, eventually to the church. That's a sin that's to be lovingly confronted. But having said that, right, any sin that has become characteristic and is destructive, having said that, when I talk about this graciousness and this patience, listen, we are meant to live together in such a way that we absorb a lot of mistreatment. We give a lot of grace. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4. In fact, look there. 1 Peter chapter 4. So you can see this with your eyes. 1 Peter 4, look at verse 7. I'm going to read this from the ESV because most of you still have the ESV. 1 Peter 4, look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love 
covers a multitude of sins. I want you to take note of what is in verse 8. First of all, above all, this is a priority. What he describes is a priority. Let me tell you why I think that's important. Most churches like ours that say we, we want to honor God by honoring His Word in every realm of our existence and practice, churches that have a high view of God, a high view of the Scriptures, a high view of the church and what church membership means, most of our churches would, eat, would, would quickly say it is a matter of priority to address sin issues. And we are right to say that. Show me a church where discipline is not practiced, I'll show you an unfaithful church. But Peter is saying, the Spirit of God through Peter is saying, you know what else is a priority? Right? Above all, I mean, this is a matter of priority. Keep loving one another. Keep loving one another. This is something that has to endure. This is something we have to continue in. This is something we are intentional about, conscious of, striving for, aiming at, that we keep loving one another. And he adds the word earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. That is, it is sincere. It is intentional. And then he says, since, because, what he's calling for, you see, connects with what he's about to say. Why is this a priority? Why do we keep loving one another? Why do we make sure it's earnest? Because love covers a multitude of sins, which is to say genuine godly love is gracious. It's patient. It's not quick to be offended. It doesn't immediately go on high alert about everything that it recognizes to be wrong. So that what is motivating us is not aggravation, agitation, bitterness, spitefulness, a wounded ego, fear. What motivates us is nothing less than the love of God. And what that will mean is that a healthy church is not characterized by investigating each other. You ever been in a church where there's constant investigation? assuming the worst about each other, suspicious-minded, impatient with each other. Right? We don't leave room for the Spirit of God to do His work. Have you ever known a situation that you were concerned about and you, imagine this, you prayed about it and then you watched the person come to the conclusion you hoped they would come to? Healthy churches know about that. Do you believe the Spirit of God does better work than you? Now, I know He works through you. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But sometimes His choice is not to work through you, but to work directly in the heart of the person you're concerned about. Do you pray for them? In fact, let me say, say this. Even if He chooses to use you, if it's a prayerless work, it's going to be a mess. So are you praying for this person? Healthy churches are not impatient congregations. We must beware judgmentalism. I know this has been abused in our day, but there is such a thing as judgmentalism. 
What is it? It's engaging in judgments that act as if we know what only God can know. As if I can inerrantly understand your heart. As if I can inerrantly know your motivations. Or judging with a finality that only belongs to God. One of the real heartbreaking, sad things you see on display in churches that are word-centric is how quick people are sometimes to pronounce these final judgments. It ought to frighten us. That person's just not saved. You know that? How? How do you know that? What are you basing that on? I'm not saying there, there isn't a time to draw that conclusion. There is a time to draw such a conclusion. Our text tells us there's a time that this person becomes an evangelism project. But the swiftness with which that happens sometimes in the mouths of God's people is frightening. Do you know what you don't know? So a healthy church is not a place where you feel like you've walked into the FBI bureau Investing each other, investigating each other, assuming the worst about each other, impatient with each other, desiring the destruction of each other. How contrary is that to the love of God? But at the same time, we must understand a healthy church is also not, in, not characterized by indifference to each other. How you live and are living should matter to the family of God. How you're doing spiritually should matter to this church. Refusing to acknowledge clear, persistent matters of sin. And how many churches are clear, persistent matters of sin just swept under the rug? We just act like we don't see it. That's not a healthy church. We're expecting our God to work in ways that ignore the means that God has revealed in Scripture that He has chosen to work through. God has chosen to work through His people for the care of His people. God has chosen to work through mutual correction. So if you're the person saying, don't talk to me, if the Lord wants this to change, He'll deal with me, you are, you are ignoring Scripture. No, God has chosen to use His people to help you. And in the same way, if you say, I, I just want to turn a blind eye to that, I want to act like I don't see that because I don't want to get involved, you're violating the Scriptures. So we are patient. We do trust God to do work that I can't do. But when it becomes glaring, when it becomes unmistakable, when it's undeniable, when I'm watching my brother or sister ruin himself or herself, how can I say I love them and not go to rescue them? Healthy churches rescue one another. To act as if Scripture is not clear about something that it's clear about is arrogant. It dishonors the living God, and it's not loving your brother or your sister. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I sure hope the pastors get to that. This teaching addresses all of us. It's not waiting around for one of the elders to address the sin issue that you see. Now, taking into account everything I've just said, that love covers a multitude of sins. 
Not a place where we exhaust each other and exasperate each other by sitting in judgment of every sin we commit, for we will absolutely ruin each other if we do that. Realizing that it's, it's characteristic sins, persistent sins, that are destroying life. These are the things we must address. It's, it's, it's an entire church responsibility. This is what it means for the family of God to love itself in a way that honors Jesus. So we'll stop with those four right now. We'll come back tonight and see five more. But in closing this morning, I just want to ask you, do you belong to the family of God? This is life lived as a child of God on this side of eternity. Are you one of those children? Do you belong to the family of God? Are are you within the scope of this instruction? Because if you say you're a member of the family of God, you're within the scope of this instruction. You can't say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't want anybody watching my life. I love Jesus, but I don't want anybody to ever reach out to me about things that are hurting me. I'm sorry. The moment you profess faith in Jesus Christ and say you're a member of a church like this one, then we're responsible to love you in this way. We would be unfaithful to Christ and to you if we acted like your life choices have nothing to do with us. Are you a member of the family of God? Second question, do you embrace the plan of God for the correction of His children? Do you embrace this? Are you thankful for it? Do you say, I believe it? So that, it, so that it's mutual. I, I will welcome someone loving me in this kind of way. And I will love you in this kind of way. Do you embrace it? Are you seeking to escape it right now? Somebody hearing me today that right now, people are pursuing you. They are loving you. They are speaking to you. They are praying for you. They are addressing you. But you just persist. In your sin. As I said, we'll return to this text tonight. But as we finish, remember these words. This is what I meant when I said that if you practice this mechanically, you're really practicing it in a fleshly manner. The heart for these verses has to be present for the practice of these verses. Galatians 6 verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, by the way, just one step back. This is why I said it's really any sin that continues to be persistent, characteristic, destructive in a person's life. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You are a servant of Christ. You're spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What is the goal? Restoration. Rescue. What is the attitude? Gentleness. Where does that come from? Next statement. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I'm not the person who has arrived, and I could never do what you've done. I'm the person who in other ways has done exactly what you've done. 
or could do what you've done. And so examining myself, trying to remove anything out of my eye so that I can see clearly to help you remove what is in your eye, the spirit of gentleness and humility. Let me talk to you one-on-one and pray that you'll hear me. Pray that you'll hear me. See, this is how the church loves itself with the love of Jesus Christ. It's a family matter. It's an orderly matter. It is a wisdom matter. It is a redemptive matter. Tonight we'll come back and see the rest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the instruction you've given us by which your children are loved, protected, kept, corrected in a world full of sin that threatens us at every turn. May you produce in us minds and hearts full of the truth, but also full of submission to you so that we practice this in a way that it's meant to be practiced. We practice this in a way that reflects the love of the shepherd for the sheep, the wisdom of the shepherd as he shepherds his sheep. And in that way, may we glorify you and care for each other genuinely, earnestly, sincerely, intentionally. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.